Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Jamie Keach. Jamie is the chairman of Vita Carbon, partner at Inventa Capital, and he's the CIO of Resource Insider. Today on the show, we're talking about mining, commodities, energy, and carbon. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hey, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. thought we could just start with a brief introduction for anybody watching and listening. Uh, what's your background and what are you doing now? Yeah, okay. It might not be a brief introduction then. I might have a lot to say. About yeah, that's that. totally um, fine. So my background, I'm a mining engineer by training. Uh, I have an undergrad degree in mining engineering and a master's degree in environmental engineering. I spent most of my career, or at least the first decade or so of my career, working on mining projects around the world, um, throughout uh, Europe, throughout Asia, throughout Latin America, Northern Canada, um, first as a mining engineer, and then later as an environmental engineer. For the last seven years, though, I've been based out of Vancouver. I um, I started, I kind of came to Vancouver, uh, you know, with technical experience, but very little business experience at that point. I wanted to really learn how companies in the natural resource space were incubated and started and financed and launched and listed and, and how these sort of things came to be. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd worked with a lot of these companies in a consulting role or an engineering role. And I saw all these guys who, who were, I thought knew a lot less than me about mining that were making tons of money and, you know, starting companies. And I thought I'd really like to do that. So I moved to Vancouver. I didn't have a job. I was about 29 at the time. And I, uh, basically started kicking around and harassing people uh, and asking them for advice and trying to get to know people who were were doing the kind of things that I wanted to be doing. Uh, and I somehow sort of managed to weasel my way into meeting uh, a guy named Greg Smith, who at the time was running this little uh, gold company focused in Peru called Anthem United. We hit it off and I joined that company. I was the first outside hire. I was the first technical person they hired. And over the course of about three years, we went from a $20 million company to a about a $2 billion company when I left. And that company is called Equinox Gold today. Uh, Ross Beattie is the chairman. Greg is the CEO of that company. God, I don't even remember now, six or seven acquisitions in three years. Uh, so it was a real kind of a PhD for me in, in sort of the business uh, side uh, of mining and company building. And, and that was sort of my introduction to that. And it was, you know, hugely valuable. And then after that, should I keep going or do you have any questions? Along? No, go ahead. This is great. Uh, after that, I started an investment newsletter called the Resource Insider Newsletter, where I focused uh, on the kind of investing that I wanted to do, which was investing in companies that were primarily private companies, soon to be listed companies focused on commodities and natural resources. And, you know, I, you know, the, the premise of the newsletter was very simple. I went out and looked for opportunities that I wanted to invest my own money into. I found those opportunities. I did invest my money into it. And I would tell our readers what I was doing and how they could do the same thing if they were so inclined to do so. And, you know, we ended up having a tremendous amount of success early on. It didn't hurt that we caught a pretty good bull market uh, in the sort of 2019, 2020 uh, years that did great things for our portfolio. And, and that newsletter grew quite successfully. And I got more and more interested in how these companies were really started from scratch, from the earliest possible stages, finding management teams, finding assets, financing them. And, you know, I, I met a bunch of like-minded people in that process, particularly two guys named uh, Craig Perry and Michael Connert, uh, who were working at Vizsla Resources at the time, um, or I should say Vizsla Silver now. And they started a, a company called Inventa Capital, designed to do exactly this. And I joined Inventa Capital as a partner. Um, and that was... I guess it was about two years ago now. Uh, and so I've been still running the newsletter, but more focused as, or equally focused, I should say, on incubating and starting new companies within the natural resource sector. And I know one you want to talk about today, a company I'm the chairman of is a company called Vita Carbon. And, you know, when I joined Inventa, one of my key personal mandates was to get more exposure to what I would call sort of the net zero trade, 
to the energy transition. They'd had a tremendous amount of success in primarily precious metals, and I wanted to go after things like copper, like lithium, like uh, uh, carbon credits, like um, hydrogen, things that I, I thought were going to be sort of the, the key commodities of the future. Uh, and that's what we did. And that's where we are today. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm on the same page as you as far as the energy transition and the materials that we're going to need to move into that. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to get you on the show was just as far as mining goes in Canada yeah. specifically. I know if you if you Google, you know, commodities in Canada, you'll come up with a nice map of Canada with all these mines and smelters and all these things going on. Yeah. So I guess a, a good question, a good place to start would be what should somebody look for in a mining company, say copper or whatever in North America that that may pique your interest for one of these businesses? Well, it depends which stage of that mining company you, you want to look at, right? Uh, you know, we have everything from the junior end of the spectrum. These are the early stage exploration companies where you're actually going out and you're looking to find new mineral deposits. You're, you know, poking holes in the ground with a drill and you're hoping that you find something. And you're using, if you're doing your job right, all the best science and ge you know, geo information available to help do that. And then you have all the way up to sort of multinational, multi-asset conglomerates where they have multiple mines, you know, often all over the world. These are multi-multi-billion dollar or deca-billion dollar companies, you know, the Rio Tintos, the BHPs of the world. So there's a whole spectrum that you can invest in in the mining and, and natural resources sector. And it depends basically what level of risk you're willing to take. You know, the beautiful thing about the small companies, and this is really where we focus on a lot at Resource Insider, it's a lot of where my experience and my expertise kind of lay, is that if you do your job right, if you choose the right asset, if you're the right company, and they make a big discovery or they develop an asset, you know, your returns can be pretty astronomical, right? They can be you know, not just doubles or triples, but five-time returns, 10-time returns, whatever. The sky's the limit. We've all heard of these sort of discoveries that, you know, deliver 100-time returns to shareholders. The flip side of that is that they can also go to zero. There can, you know, be millions or tens of millions, or in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of shareholder money spent, basically burnt, uh, you know, poured into the ground and have nothing to show for it. And that's the result that happens more often than not. And there's a huge amount of risk in that scale of investing. There's a huge amount of luck involved. You know, I mean, what exploration companies are doing is is speculating, really. You know, they're making what I would say they're making. Uh, they have a hypothesis. It's just like any other sort of science experiment. They they have a hypothesis and they go out and test that hypothesis. And the problem with testing a hypothesis in the mining space is sometimes it costs $50 million to test that hypothesis. And, you know, then there's nothing there. So if you're the kind of investor that likes the high risk, high return, you know, that's maybe the spot for you. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, there's very professionally run decabillion dollar mining companies with the risk diversified across a variety of jurisdictions, a variety of assets at different stages, et cetera, et cetera. And these are often great. If you're just looking for exposure to a given commodity, you can invest in a copper mining company or a gold mining company or, or what have you. And that's a much, much safer way to get exposure to that if you're looking to really minimize your risk levels to, to the best you can. And if those companies are well run and they're profitable and they've got you know competent, diligent management, they should be able to outperform the underlying commodity, right? A great run gold company should in theory outperform the price of gold and the same for copper or whatever. Doesn't always happen this way, but your risk of a complete blow up of, you know, the share price going down 90% is pretty low on that. And then your upside is still quite high or at least reasonably high in a strong sort of commodity market. So did I answer that question properly? Yeah, absolutely. I think basically to sum that up for me is it's complicated, but if you want to, if you want to go into small cap, it's going to be riskier, much like other industries. And if you want to go into large cap, you've got a little bit of protection with, yeah. you know, the kind of the cash and capital that they can deposit in different areas. One thing that I've been kind of, you know, thinking about in my own head is in North America, we have all these commodities, especially in Canada. And I know in the US, they've got their new Inflation Reduction Act, which I think will help them in some of these, you know, 
transition energy areas. I want to just sort of get your take on Canadian miners specifically, as opposed to global miners, because for me personally, I would like to try to avoid some of that geopolitical risk or, you know, some of the sketchier areas. But I do know that a lot of these mines are in, you know, different parts of the world. So I just wasn't sure exactly where to start. You know, there are lots of Canadian focused mining companies. Um, you know, Canada is a frustrating case for me personally, as an investor and as a Canadian and as someone who spent the majority of my career in the mining industry. You know, Canada is one of the most resource rich country, countries on the planet. You know, everything from energy, oil and gas, you know, gold, copper, nickel, diamonds, you know, and then there's obviously all the soft commodities, uh, you know, uh, wheat and lumber and timber, et cetera. We're, you know, so well endowed in that. However, getting mines or anything permitted and executed on in Canada is very, very challenging in many jurisdictions and increasingly more challenging. Uh, you know, where I live now in British Columbia, it is very, very hard to get a new mine or a discovery of a mine actually permitted and built. You know, there are the First Nation um, engagements as well as sort of provincial government and federal government, and you got to jump through all these hoops. And, you know, in BC in particular, First Nations can be very, very challenging, or it can be, uh, you know, a great group to work with. And it really depends, you know, all these different nations are different, and some are very pro-resource development, and some are not. And depending on where your project is, it might be easy and it might be hard. So that's kind of level one, call that the local level. Then you need to go through the provincial level, and then you need to go through federal approval as well, too. So getting a mine permitted and built in Canada is a very, 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 very hard thing to do on many locations. However, you know, I think, you know, particularly like a place like BC, Canada has like a real obligation to be to be more proactive in developing these resources. You know, if you look at, you know, the energy metal, the most important energy metal, that's copper. You know, that is without a doubt copper. Copper is sort of the bedrock of everything electricity. And BC in particular is incredibly well endowed with copper deposits. Now, one of the issues for those copper deposits is they are timely and costly and hard to get approved and hard to get built. But, you know, if you can do that, you know, you're living in a province that is almost entirely um, powered off of renewable, en renewable energy, right? British Columbia is almost 100% hydroelectrical power. So you would have a source of copper that is, you know, truly as close to net zero as you're going to get from anywhere in the world. And you're in a country that has extremely, extremely strict environmental laws in terms of what it takes to build a mine, what it takes to close a mine, all the, the, the maintenance required on that, the monitoring required on that. And, you know, to, to tell me that like a Canadian, you know, the Canadian government would rather be buying copper from projects throughout Africa, throughout Mongolia, throughout places that don't have these sort of stringent environmental best practices in place, don't have access to renewable energies the way we do is, it's, it's so, so hypocritical. So th this is like a really frustrating point for me because I, I think, you know, Canadian engineers are some of the best in the world. I'm biased. I am one. I think the way we build mines here is so far ahead in terms of best practices, in terms of environmental responsibility than almost anywhere else in the world. There, I mean, there are some good ex examples out there, but we are true leaders in it. And, you know, this, this industry gets brushed aside often by particularly the federal government right now. And what they, you know, can't seem to wrap their heads around is that by not producing copper in Canada, you're not not producing copper, you're just getting it from somewhere else. And getting it from somewhere else can be much more problematic, can be much more impactful. If these guys were serious about, you know, approaching climate change, this would be a top priority for them. So I don't know if I answered your question or just went on a rant, but that's one of the challenges in Canada. If you're looking, there are good companies doing well in Canada that have great assets here, uh, you know, in the Agnico Eagle is, is one of the key ones. I, I always think they do a phenomenal job. Uh, both Barrick and Newmont have assets throughout North America. This is the gold space. In terms of copper, I mean, the tech, tech has coal mines in Canada. They might have their copper mines in Latin America. I'm not sure what they have in Canada. There, there, are, there are examples. Um, 
we can kind of get into that in, a, in in depth in some conversation if you'd like, but I think that's a good smattering of it. Yeah, I, and I think what you've sort of alluded to is some regulatory risk in Canada that you, st- you sort of have to jump through those hurdles. And mm, yeah. for me, part of my long-term thesis is that those regulatory hurdles that we feel right now in Canada could end up helping us in the future because with ESG and the way that ESG is moving, they're starting to poke a lot of holes in the ESG mandates that they have now. And they're starting Mm. to find that these companies that claim to be ESG are, as you say, sourcing their materials from some of these less environmentally friendly areas of the world. Yeah. And I feel like as we move forward with ESG, as it builds momentum and it starts getting a microscope on what's actually going on, products from places like Canada that are heavily regulated and copper that comes out of our mines, and I've thought about this with oil as well, energy from Canada could be considered a more sought after commodity as people start to look at the carbon related to these commodities. And in Canada, it's so well regulated, they can point to it and say, look, we're following these mandates. You know, our copper is greener than anybody else's. I just thought I would run that idea by what do you think about that as a thought? I I think that's a very, very correct idea. Um, I think, you know, the world has to reckon with the fact that at this point, we are still very, very, very dependent on fossil fuels for energy. You know, I, I, I listen, more than as much as anyone, I think that there should be a transition to renewable energies in all the areas where that makes sense, right? Where there's enough wind for, for wind turbines, when there's enough sun for solar field, solar fields. That I think, you know, as much as we can reasonably do to reduce emissions, I think it's very, very important. But there's no better example of like a fuck up for this than if you look at the European Union. Like the European Union, Germany in particular, I believe, has on their books 200% capacity of renewable energy for their energy demand, right? So that means in theory, they should be able to produce twice as much energy as they require from their solar panels, from their wind turbines, et cetera, et cetera. But as we know now, that doesn't pan out in practice, right? It doesn't pan out because it's not always windy, because it's not always sunny, because they're in a temperate climate, because they have a proper winter. So whilst it looks really nice on paper, what they've really done is they've outsourced their extraction of fossil fuels to other countries, right? Russia being the primary example there. They didn't want to be developing the perfectly fine natural gas fields that they actually have in Germany and are unwilling to frack. Instead, they're willing to just take that natural gas for from Russia and pretend that they've you know done nothing wrong. And in doing so, I mean, everyone's have seen what's happened there. They've kind of handed the keys to Europe to a lunatic despot now who now controls the continent. And they've put themselves at extreme risk, at extreme exposure. Everyone in Europe because of this, what I what I really think is a self-righteous and a willfully blind attitude towards the essentiality of fossil fuels. And if instead what they had done was they'd said, look, a transition plan from you know greenhouse gas emitting energy to non-greenhouse gas emitting energy is going to take time. It's going to cost trillions and trillions of dollars, and we're going to need to do that over the next decades, not decade, instead of, you know, in five years from now, we can build a plan for that. But what we're going to do in the meantime is we are going to responsibly produce and responsibly consume fossil fuels. And there are many, many different ways to do that. And there's there's examples of that. Like a good one is actually offsetting the emissions from that, for example. But, you know, they didn't do it. And we're seeing the same willful blindness in Canada right now. You know, Justin Trudeau, when the German chancellor came to Canada and basically begged for help with their energy crises, when he said, can you please send us LNG? Can you please send us liquefied natural gas so that we are no longer dependent on Russia? What did Justin Trudeau do? He said, well, you know, there's not really an economic case for that. However, there is an economic case for green hydrogen which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever fucking heard in my entire life, because it is like, look at, I've invested in green hydrogen. In many cases, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal commodity. However, it is not as cheap to produce as natural gas, hands down, bar none. So how can he say that? How can he say that there is not a economic case for natural gas to be exported from Canada to Europe 
whilst there is for green hydrogen. And what's happened there? One, we've basically, that, that gas is gonna come from somewhere. Now, the German government has signed, you know, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar deals with Australia now, for example, and they're looking to do them elsewhere. And not only did Canada give up that opportunity to develop this infrastructure, to get tax dollars into the country, they're also just like, they're offloading the problem to someone else, which there's, I mean, there's no, there's nothing more irresponsible than that. You're not virtuous. You're just brushing it under the rug, which is ridiculous. So again, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's my thoughts on that. No, that's okay. I completely agree. And I think it's good to just discuss this because when we talk about the transition to green energy, it's going to take a lot more than most people would consider. Yeah. For example, yeah. the grid's going to need to be upgraded in a major way to sustain this type of intermittent power. And that's a big reason why I wanted to start looking into mining, because as you mentioned earlier, it's a very complicated business. And it's not one that I'm really comfortable investing in yet, as you say, invest in what you know. Yeah. But it's a place that I want to learn more about. And I think copper is a good place to start, but they're also going to need steel. They're going to need everything to upgrade the grid. And we're probably going to need lithium for batteries. Yeah. We're going to need all of these kind of things for backup solutions. And when we talk about the transition to green energy, it is going to take a lot longer than we think as well. So with that being said, you know, I've sort of been looking into oil and gas. And I just think that, you know, when we talk about mining commodities before we move into carbon, what kind of commodities do you think, other than copper, we could be looking at for the grid upgrade, for batteries? You know, I know even Tesla's been talking about building a gigafactory in Canada. And of course, they're going to want to, you know, source their materials as close as they can. So uh, what, what kind of commodities do you think will be the most oh, important? We have the cure for greenhouse gas emissions. We have it today. It's called uranium. It's called yes. nuclear energy. Like we could turn that on tomorrow and solve the problem. Done, like hands down. But but like there's not a willingness to consider your nuclear energy amongst, I, I would say the more activist component of people uh, uh, pushing for the green energy transition, which it's like, it's really a shame. Like, obviously there are lots of things to consider with nuclear power plants. There's, you know, safety concerns, but there has been almost no, I don't think there's been a single death from nuclear energy in North America outside of the three mile Island disaster. in like, whenever it was the seventies, there might've been, and that was like a couple, uh, if you look at the Fukushima disaster, there were no, there's one death that's been associated with that. And that's one person that got uh, a form, I believe it's a form of lung cancer after the fact. Uh, and that's actually under investigation of what that came from. And so if you like, you kind of pluck Chernobyl out of the equation there, which, you know, a Russian reactor in whatever it was, the 60s or 70s, like nuclear energy has the safest track record of any energy source in the world. There's more people that have died installing windmills than have died from nuclear energy. So there's the safety component, which is a big concern to people. And then there's the waste component. And look, this is something that needs to be dealt with, but like the average person energy consumption in their lifetime comes to like less than a cup of nuclear waste. So if we're serious about greenhouse gas emissions, if we want it to be a you know global emergency, a global, if it's a global emergency, we want it to make a global priority to actually solve this because it's existential, because if we don't in the next, whenever they say five, 10, 20 years that, you know, the world's over, then we need to really seriously look at nuclear energy because we can actually store this stuff. And it's, you know, it's not without its concerns. It's not without its problems, but there are, there's a cost to doing everything. And if the alternative is just turn off the electricity and let millions of people starve or freeze to death, I don't think that that's a viable alternative. Look at, you know, actual renewable energy. Like it's been something like $5 trillion. $5 trillion has been poured into nuclear energy and they make up something like 0.5% of the grid globally, right? It's, it's a tremendous amount of money for a very, very small amount of power that's been generated. And that is not to say that we shouldn't continue to develop this, that we shouldn't pour money into research and development and then hope that they will hit a tipping point someday where they become more widespread and more you know, economically viable. But it is to say that it's going to take time and it's going to cost a lot of money. And I mean, the other bottleneck is, is 
is battery capacity, right? It's like in the US, it's like if you had took all the battery capacity, it has enough to hold enough power to power the entirety of the US for like 12 minutes or something like that. It's like a teeny tiny fraction of what you would even need to consider to consider considering doing it. It's like there's so far to go. So there is much like kind of lower hanging fruit here. Like even if you just switched from coal power plants to natural gas power plants, you're automatically reducing emissions by like 30%. Like that would do more than every windmill and every solar farm across the United States has ever done in terms of the greater impacts on emission. So you do nuclear energy and you do natural gas, and then that doesn't even account for putting in sort of natural gas emissions capture technology, which is something that a lot of people are working on to good effect. Like there are a lot of options here. And um, I don't think the options that are actually able to accomplish the goal are being considered as seriously as they should be. Yeah, I agree. So uranium, of course. Uranium. That's a good place to start. And so commodities. I mean, look, uh, uranium, copper, nickel. Cannot go wrong with those three things, right? Lithium is going to go up and down. Cobalt, uh, vanadium, they're going to go up and down. They're smaller niche markets. Uranium, copper, nickel. They're massive markets, and they are the most important elements of the, our energy infrastructure from a metals perspective. I mean, copper is in everything. Nickel, like you look at a lithium ion battery, it's still mostly nickel. Like these are really, really key elements that are essential to the energy transition. And if I'm just an investor wanting to put a little bit of money into something, I don't want to say safe, but something more stable than some of these more volatile uh, elements like lithium or cobalt in particular, then I would say you stick with those three over time, they're going to do you very well. That's my view on that. Yeah. And uranium, when I think about uranium, I generally think of Cameco. Yeah. And is, is uranium, is it something that's kind of abundant across the world or is it sort of isolated in different areas? Um, th there are numerous places throughout the world where people mine uranium successfully, but it's not everywhere, right? Uh, you know, Canada's a big one in Saskatchewan. There's Cameco, there's NextGen. NextGen's kind of like the sexiest deposit in the world of almost any metal or commodity. And NextGen is just such an unbelievably amazing uranium asset. But again, it's been, God, I don't know how many years it's been going. And don't quote me on this, but I think they still have a long way to go to get the permits to actually build a mine there and build a mill or plant to process that because it's uranium. We talked about permitting earlier being complicated. Uranium is a whole different level of complication for obvious reasons, for security reasons, for real reasons. So you've got Saskatchewan, um, you've got uh, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, a massive uranium producer. Uh, you've got Niger in Africa, a massive, a significant uranium producer. There are uranium deposits throughout the United States. There's uranium deposits in Australia. There's probably a bunch of other I'm missing, but, but I mean, look, high quality uranium deposits that are actually producing, there's not many of them. And like, if you want to get some exposure to uranium, there's, there's lots of good options. Cameco, NextGen, uh, Sprott Uranium Trust. Um, there's, there's lots of them. And, you know, I, I'm kind of talking my own book here, like years ago at Resource Insider, we helped put together a small uranium fund and we, I think we did this in 2018 and we've had tremendous returns in it over the last several years. Yeah, I think that's great. Another part of the market that I like to look at is the small modular reactors. And there's a company I've been looking, I don't own any currently at this time, but I've mm -hmm. been looking at them, tickers SMR, it's new scale and you know, I think that small modulars could have a place in the world, especially in a low carbon environment. Um, yeah. I just thought I would throw that out there as a, as an option. Cause they do about, you know, three to 600 megawatts per reactor, which as you obviously know, is a lot of wind turbines or solar panels at zero yeah. carbon. So just moving on to carbon then I know you, with your company V to carbon, you invest in offset projects. So you're, right. You're generally working in the voluntary market then? Is that where you guys like to live? Yeah, to date, um, our focus has been 100% on the voluntary market. We have looked at projects in the compliance markets uh, or, in, or in trades in the compliance markets. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out as something we might do in the future, but for the foreseeable future, the you know, near and medium term, we will be focused in voluntary. That's where we see... That's where we see the biggest growth. That's where we see, you know, the highest margins on the projects we're investing in. That's where we see a tremendous amount of opportunity. And it's a, it's a niche we've been able to 
operate very effectively. And so we're going to keep doing that for a while. Yeah. And I see you've got a Amazon project and two cook stove projects going on. Yeah. Where do you see, like when you sign on for these carbon offset projects, they make a contract with you to give you so many offset credits, correct? And then you can hold on to them sort of as a physical asset to sell to whoever you like, or is it generally, are you kind of a middleman for another company? So our business model um, is really stolen from the gold space, which stole it from the energy space. And it's the royalty and streaming model. And what we do is we go in, we meet and we've interviewed dozens and dozens of uh, operators or in the carbon space, they're called developers, people that go out and actually create these projects and we invest with them. So, you know, we'll be the first to say we are an investment company. Our focus is on investing capital with the best developers in the space. And there are about 170 different ways to create a carbon credit. You know, you can do this by nature-based solutions, which are things like planting trees, replanting trees, conserving forests, um, conserving and planting mangroves. Uh, these are things like uh, more efficient farming practices. We have a project that creates efficiency in rice fields in Asia. And by doing that, it reduces methane production. There are uh, energy efficiency projects. This is things like high efficiency cook stoves. This is things like switching to LED lights. Uh, there's renewable energy projects. There's dozens and dozens of different ways to do these things. And our goal at Vita is to find the guys that are really, really good at doing a certain project. What we do then is we provide them with upfront capital to make up the numbers here. We'll say the $10 million upfront that allows them to go do what they do best. Maybe that's conserving forests, like our project in the Amazon. Maybe that's, you know, creating cook stove projects in India, like our, our projects there. And in exchange for that money, which basically gives them the capital, the operating capital to go and build and operate those projects, we get a percentage of the credits generated from that project in perpetuity. So it'll depend project by project basis, but on the low side, it tends to be about 20% of the credits. On the high side, it's about 50% of the credits. And this is great for the operator because they go out and they have the money to go expand their business, do new projects, things that they probably wouldn't have done otherwise. This is great for us because it allows us to leverage their skill set and still get sort of the upside of these projects, of, of these credits rather. And you know, the really beautiful thing about this business model is that we're very, very aligned with the operators because all of our goal here after that is to go out and make sure that that project is doing everything they said they were going to do, operating as best they can, and thereby generating as many carbon credits as possible, which we can then sell into the market. And then so Vita's job is to take those credits and then we sell them to, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, you know, we recently announced a sale of one of, of one project to Shell Energy, for example, and that was a you know, a big milestone for us because it was our first deal with a major energy provider. Yeah. And I know Shell's really on board with the offsetting because as you say, it's, yeah. it's going to take longer than we think. So all kind of putting it all together, all the things we've talked about, the energy transition is going to happen just based mm -hmm. on political views and the way that things are moving. And it's maybe not taking the correct path that it should have 10 years ago. So for example, nuclear or whatnot. So we're kind of in this position, I believe, where offsetting is really going to be an important part of this net zero movement. I mean, um, the whole term net zero implies yeah. offsetting, right? Because like, yeah. think about it from accounting, right? Like gross zero, gross means none. Like if gross zero means there are no emissions that, you know, the, the, the taps are turned off, we're not burning any other fossil fuels. Net zero means like a balance of the teeter-totter, right? So if you produce a million tons of greenhouse gas, you need to offset a million tons of greenhouse gas. You are then net zero. So the best and most effective way to do that is buying carbon credits that offset your emissions. So it's it's kind of built into the name. And when I hear criticism of, well, carbon credits don't work, then what I always say is, you know, why is it called net zero then? Why is it not just called gross zero? And because gross zero is impossible. Gross zero can't happen. I don't foresee a world where there are zero emissions at all. I mean, just look at the cement industry. Cement produces 8% of the world's emissions, just the creation of cement. So like, are we not going to have cement anymore? I'd say that's unlikely. So there's lots of things like that. It's not just fuel and cars. So, yeah. Yeah. And something you touched on there that sort of still gets to me a little bit when I'm looking at this market is the different ways that credits can be created and mm. how that relates to the quality of the credit, because not all credits are equal. 
So it can no. get very confusing because you think it's one ton of CO2, but it's not, it's different. You know, they all have their own risks, pros and cons. So when you look at carbon offset projects, do you tend to lean towards the nature-based solutions or do you like to go more technology, carbon capture kind of deal? So that's a good question. Uh, and it's a complicated question. So for us at Vita, we take what we would call a portfolio approach. Now, the carbon credits have been around for a while now. They've been around for about 20 years, um, but it's still a very nascent industry. It's still a small industry. So last year in 2021, you know, there were like, there are only about hundred million credits sold globally, about a billion dollars worth. So, you know, it's, it's an industry smaller than most companies and it's got a long way to grow. You know, I think it's Mark Carney said that they expect this to be a hundred billion dollar market. So there's a hundred times growth over the next couple of uh, next decade or two. So what's going to happen over that time, we're seeing a huge amount of demand for carbon credits, right? Like we've got basically every major company in the world, something like half of the 2000 biggest companies have committed to being net zero, committed to buying carbon credits. Shell is the best example, right? Shell is committing to buy 120 million credits per year, every year, every year by 2030. So remember I said there were hundred million credits sold last year. Shell is going to be buying 120% of the market in just seven years. And the same is true for basically every energy company in the world, all the tech companies, all the mining companies, most of the manufacturing companies, et cetera. So we've got a huge demand and then we've got a relatively small amount of supply, nowhere near to meet that demand. No, not even like, not even close. So what's going to happen are a lot of projects are going to get built. And there's, like I said, about 170 different ways. And there's going to be a lot of money that floods into this sector. And some of that money is going to go to build extremely high quality carbon offset projects that do exactly what they say they're going to do, that actually reduce emissions by one ton of greenhouse gas or remove one ton of greenhouse gas from the atmosphere in order to create one credit, okay? But there's going to be some that don't do that, that fail either technically, that fail due to incompetence, that fail due to malice. Because whenever a lot of money flows into a new space, people take advantage of it. And there's lots of people. There's competent people, there's idiots, and then there's bad people. And the idiots and the bad people, some of them are going to get their hands on money too. And they're going to create poor projects that will hurt the space and that will look very bad. And you're going to hear about those in the news. However, I think, and I hope most of that money is going to go into the hands of highly competent operators, talented developers, people that know what they're doing and are driven by this mission to actually go out and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that's what we're trying to do at Vita. Now, for your question is, how do you spend that money? Where does that go? And how do you develop a high quality project? For us, what we want to do is develop projects across the spectrum, nature-based solutions, you know, agroforestry, improved agricultural practices, improved energy efficiency, renewable energies. We want to do everything that actually meets the criteria of a high quality project. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, is this sector is going to evolve a lot and which credits are deemed the best or the most valuable are going to change over time. We don't know what this space will look like in 10 years from now. We don't know what it's going to look like in three years from now. And right now, nature-based solutions are a very high value credit. This is the sort of thing that buyers want. This is forest conservation, planting trees, et cetera. But that might change. That might change to cook stoves. We've seen cook stoves in the past go above the value of nature-based solutions. We've seen renewable energies used to be extremely valuable, and then they've gone down in value over time. So anyone that tells you they know exactly where this market's going to go is lying to you because there's so much ambiguity there. So at Vita, what we want to do is get exposure to a lot of different project types so that we have a balanced portfolio, right? And then think of it like, like a hedge fund. Like you don't just buy one stock in a hedge fund or one type of stock. You, you want to balance it across sectors and industries and stages of project life, et cetera, in order to ha really have that balanced portfolio. So that's key is balance. But then what actually makes up uh, a high quality project? So the number one thing for a project to be considered, you know, legitimate carbon credit generating project is the concept of additionality. And additionality basically means that the economic revenue generated from the sale of a carbon credit is what incentivized that project to be created in the first place. Like basically you wouldn't have done it if you didn't get the carbon credit. So this is the issue with a lot of renewable energies, right? Like a lot of renewable energies in lots of places in the world, 
either stand on their own right, they make money from the generation and sale of power, or they've been subsidized by government and they're profitable for the, um, for the developer. And so they don't need carbon credits to justify being built. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Another good example is you can't get carbon credits for preserving a national park or a state park or a provincial park. Why? Because that park was already protected. It doesn't make any sense to issue carbon credits for something that was going to happen anyways. No one was cutting down the trees in that park. But what you can do in many cases, in some cases, is like we've done in, in Amazonia State in Brazil with our partners there, EBCF. They went out and they bought land. They bought a package of land from basically a forestry, a lumber company that had all the rights and permits to chop down the trees on that land. They acquired it. They protected it. And they turned it into a reserve and protected those that forest. They need the revenue generated from carbon credits to pay for that, to justify doing it, to maintain it. So this is a true concept. This is a true example of the concept of additionality, that if they weren't able to get the revenue from carbon credits, they wouldn't have been able to protect this you know, 20,000 hectare uh, of a sort of pristine Amazonian rainforest, and it probably would have got cut down. So that's that's carbon that stays in that forest, the carbon that gets sucked out of the air every year, that's really creating true additionality. And that is the number one thing for high quality projects. If they don't do that, they shouldn't be projects. The other thing is permanence. You want your projects to be long-term. You want them to, you know, you don't want to protect trees and get, you can't protect trees for one year and get carbon credits for one year and then chop it down and sell the lumber the next year. You know, most forestry projects have like something on the order of a hundred year life. So it's, it's a permanence to them. And then the, uh, the final concept is leakage that like, if you're just protecting a bunch of trees here and then they go and cut down the trees right next door, you're, that, that you're leaking out into that. It's like, you're just offset. You're not offsets, not, not the right word. You're just pushing the destruction down to somewhere else, right? So you want to be actually doing something that's making a real difference and they're not just sort of offloading it somewhere else. So those are the really key tenets to a quality carbon credit. These are the key tenants that we consider and that we look at and that are, it's a huge part of our due diligence before deciding to invest in any project for Vita. And I think that those sort of characteristics of a strong credit will be tested with a yeah. lot of projects because yeah. additionality, for example, when you talk about technology-based credits, some of those technologies may become best practice mm. and then they will no longer be available credits because it's now the new norm. It's no longer exactly. additional. So, that, so that's an issue with technology. Technology might, you know, actually improve the profit margins in some way. Right. And so, yeah, for yeah, sure. And it, and that's the interesting thing is like a lot of this will change as things go on and people learn more and we understand different, like the regulations will change. The rules will change. What's considered the best credit will change. So you know, anyone considering investing into the space needs to appreciate that this is a highly volatile space, that there's going to be a lot of changes. And what we're trying to do at Vita is design, you know, I'll borrow the expression from Nassim Taleb, but we're, going to, we're trying to design a very anti-fragile system, a system that will prosper and benefit from volatility, that has the range of exposure across a range of projects that as things change, our portfolio is well positioned to take advantage of that. And that's priority number one for us. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned, and I think that's perfect. That's a great way to play it because the more diversity, the better in a, something like this. And it's interesting you mentioned the concept of leakage because mm -hmm. to me, the way that I see this moving forward is renewable energy could be hit with some of those leakage issues if they start looking into where those materials were sourced and you know you're you're digging up rare earth elements in China fueled by coal power. Some you know some of these carbon credits could yeah. come into question that are created with these renewable projects. You know, the commonplace analysis of these things is like one millimeter deep. You know, people don't think mm -hmm. about where these materials come from. Here's the best the best example of that, okay? In most places in the United States, you know, most places are still coal, fire, power, energy generated, right? In most places in the United States, if you want to reduce your carbon footprint, what makes more sense? To buy a Tesla or to buy a used car? So you use car, so right. use car because not only are you not, like a Tesla in those places is still generating greenhouse gas emissions because it's coal, fire, power, electricity, pumping into it in your garage every night, a used car, you know, for every used car you buy, you're not digging up a whole other, you know, plethora 
of minerals, right? Of nickel and copper and iron ore and uh, catalytic converters. So platinum and palladium, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're, you're reusing all that stuff. And there's a whole, I wish I could remember the name of it. There's a whole study that was done on this that like for most people, if you really want to minimize the impact of greenhouse gas emissions, buy a used car, don't buy an electrical vehicle at this stage. No one wants to hear that because it's not as sexy as driving around in a new Tesla. Certainly, I think in carbon, especially because it's going to have a microscope on it, what's going to have to happen is there's going to be a lot of transparency in the market. And yeah. I had Peter Sansbury on. He's got the carbon risk substack, which is great. And hmm. he thinks that the opportunity moving forward could be within exchanges. And for me, I think it could be exchanges that are backed by some kind of blockchain technology where you can trace those credits back to their source and you can see how long they've been around and you can see who created them. And it doesn't bring the quality into question as much because you know where it came from and where it's transitioned through. What do you think about the opportunity with exchanges and uh, blockchain technology and carbon? Yeah. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate to that. You can see all that stuff now. So a carbon credit is created. It's serialized uh, by what's called a registry. And you've probably heard of Vera or gold standard or these things before. These are the basically the referees in this sector that say you're doing all this stuff. You're conserving forests, whatever, blah, 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 blah. You've done everything right. Stamp. You get to create a carbon credit here. Now, there's actually dozens of registries out there. Uh, most of them are worthless, but there are a few very, very good ones. You know, there's Vera, there's Gold Standard, there's the American Carbon Registry, uh, there's uh, there's one, one other one. There's about four really high quality registries. And one thing they all have in common is that they track carbon credits very, very accurately, right? So they issue the carbon credits, they issue it on a registry, like basically on a sheet, and you can see when that carbon credit was created, how it was created, what project it came from, when it was serialized, what, what its life has been in terms of being traded. So all that information is available for people that are willing to look for it. In terms of putting it onto some form of exchange, I can tell you uh, unequivocally that the biggest stock markets, the biggest exchange companies in the world are very aggressively, actively looking for ways to trade these things. But it's really, really tough to do because there's no standardized pricing in carbon credits right now. I mean, there are exchanges, but exchanges account for something like less than 20% of all carbon credits exchanged. Most sales occur over the counter. Most sales occur, a guy with a carbon project saying, calling up Shell or BP or Amazon or Microsoft and saying, hey, we've got a million credits coming out this year, you want them. And I'll pay you this, this, that. Okay, good, that's what we'll take. That's how most sales occur today. And carbon credits are such a boutique product at this stage, right? Like, you know, we've got cook stove projects in India and we've got cook stove projects in Ghana. And it's very likely that the credits generated by those two very similar projects in very different parts of the world will sell at different prices because they all have boutique buyers. There's people that are generating emissions in India and they want to buy carbon credits generated in India people doing the same thing in Africa. So they maybe they want to buy them from Ghana. There's all sorts of different components that weigh into that. So it's a very, very niche product. How you do it on exchange, a lot of very, very smart people are thinking about how to do that. And will they figure it out? I think so. I think yes, I think they will. But, you know, the comparison is often made from carbon credits to like a gold royalty or streaming company selling gold or selling oil, where there's a really deep uh, really kind of standardized spot market. And I don't think at this stage in the carbon credit sort of story, that is apt, an, an apt analogy. I think a more akin one would be a comparison to a commodity trader like a Glencore or a Trafigura, where you're selling zinc concentrate from one mine in Canada and the only, and the only smelter that can properly process this is in Indonesia and you got to do the deal between them. It's like, that's more akin to what it is like to sell carbon credits right now. So there will be an exchange. Um, and I and don't get me wrong, I think there should be an exchange because it'll lend transparency. It'll be great for actual price discovery. That'll become a proper market. There'll be financial instruments built on the top of that and derivatives. All things required for this space to grow and mature and have the capital come into it that it needs. But it's going to be really complicated to build this thing, and it's going to take time. And I, I think for the foreseeable future, you know, the coming years, most sales will occur over the counter. 
which is, is my guess. And just one last thing before I let you go, because this has been great. It's been a great podcast. So I really appreciate all the information oh. you've shared here. When you look at the voluntary markets and the compliance markets, we sort of have an exchange for, you know, for the EU, for EUAs right now, mm. where you've got futures, you've got more or less a spot price. Yeah. Do you think in the future, they'll start to loosen up the regulation a little bit in those compliance markets to allow voluntary? And maybe by that point, we'll just sort of have a mixed exchange of voluntary and compliance credits. So I will be the first to admit, I am by no means an expert on compliance markets. So maybe there's someone out there that will refute me on this. But my thought on this is no. The reason I say no is because you know, the way compliance markets are created is, you know, when they're launched, they tend to bring in credits from the voluntary market, right? Because they need credits that come from somewhere that actually some activity that's actually reducing or removing carbon. So they'll bring it in, but then it kind of becomes a closed system. They seal it, right? And there's a certain number of credits within that system. And the goal is to, they typically this is the case of the EU anyways, they, they typically stop allowing carbon credits or rather voluntary credits to enter that market. And what they do is every year, they reduce the number of credits available within that market. And they, the goal is to synthetically boost the price of emissions. So, so the companies actually have to change their activity as opposed to just buying credits. So will they do it? Will they, will they bring it in there? I mean, could they bring it in there on a yearly basis every year, even at a smaller and smaller numbers? I guess theoretically they could, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I, I think that it's not happening now. I'm not sure they're incentivized to let it happen. Where I do think there's a role for voluntary credits and compliance spaces in is in new compliance markets that are being built and they're being built more and more around the world. So, you know, this whole space is going to change drastically uh, over the coming decade that because there will be these compliance markets that pop up um, in many different states and provinces in the US and Canada, but also in places like throughout Asia and and throughout the rest of the world. So it's going to change a lot. But what I like about the voluntary markets is that, you know, the challenge with compliance markets is that they're a regional solution addressing a global problem. You know, it really doesn't matter how much greenhouse gas, if, you know, if Europe cuts their greenhouse gas emission by 50%, if China could quadruples theirs, it still has the same impact on, on global warming, right? And what I like about voluntary markets is it is a global solution, right? It's, it's, a, it's a solution driven by capitalism, by markets, as opposed by regulation, because regulation is very limited. They have their, you know, little regions, whether it's Europe or America or China, and they, they can't address a global problem. So it, it, I think it is something that has to be addressed by capitalism. I think you need to incentivize people to offset emissions. And I think the markets are one of the best ways or will take a big dent out of the problem. They'll do a lot to address it. So I like in the voluntary markets that every company in the world, which by and large are the biggest emitters, can craft a solution through voluntary offsets to their problem if they choose to do so. So that's you know why I'm such a big believer in voluntary markets, why I'm excited about it, why I started Vita, because I think um, it's going to play a bigger and bigger role. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. I think that the global effect of voluntary markets is is going to be something that companies like the access to as opposed mm-hmm. to compliance. They're, they're probably going to want to go for the voluntary credits because they're just they're easier to deal with. With that being said, I just thought I would give you a chance to let anybody know where they can find your company or your information or any of your media outlets. If you want to just go ahead and let anybody watching or listening know. Yeah, great. Um, so I'm again, I'm the chairman of Vita Carbon, which is just Vita, V-I-D-A, carbon.com. Uh, you can find, you know, contact information from us there. Uh, probably most active on Twitter, which is just at Jamie underscore Keech, K-E-E-C-H on Twitter. And those are probably the best places to find me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot, Joe. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. 